The sermon, as you'd probably expect if you remember, we've been in this series on Genesis and we're going to continue in this series looking at Genesis. Uh, and today specifically, we're going to be in chapters 18 and 19, and we're going to be looking at the very familiar story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Probably it's one that you know, this story. Uh, you're probably familiar with the passage and sort of already know how the story plays out and what takes place, but we're going to take a look at it. We're going to uh, dig deep in Scripture and look at what's really going on here uh, and sort of pull out some main ideas and major themes of what's sort of at work here in this passage. Um, and I'll sort of give us a little bit of a heads up of where we're going and sort of one of the main ideas. We're going to look at a few things in this passage, but certainly centrally, and if you know this passage, this wouldn't be a surprise, but one of the main ideas that we're going to see in this passage as we sort of work our way through verse by verse is that God hates sin and that he punishes sin. And certainly we see that it's awfully clear in this passage, uh, and we'll flesh that out a little bit more. But also, and maybe this isn't quite as obvious, but we're going to see is that even in the midst of, of God punishing this great sin and evil that, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah, they're guilty of, yet even in the midst of that, we see God operating in a wonderfully gracious way. Particularly, we're going to see this uh, in the person of Lot and the fact that God spares him from the destruction that comes upon these cities, right? He leads him out and spares him. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that as well. And so even in a, in a story where, as we think about it, we probably think of it as sort of the epitomal, you know, uh, sort of fire and brimstone, God just sort of pouring out his wrath on people who've done evil, even in the midst of that epitomal story of God's judgment, yet we see, of course, hope, and we see grace and God being merciful and bringing about deliverance of, of Lot here. So let's dive right in. We're going to be looking first, sort of in a sense, to set the context, set the stage a little bit. We're going to be right at the beginning of chapter 18 here, looking at verses 1 and 2, and then we'll jump to verse 16 and read all the way through well into chapter 19. So Genesis 18, uh, verses 1 and 2, and I'll read it for us, and we'll just sort of work our way through verse by verse and do the teaching. So Genesis 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. So I'll just sort of sum up what's going on here, but just sort of in a word, God shows up here, appears to Abraham, and he shows up uh, accompanied by two angels. So the three men, or they appear to be men, it turns out that one is God himself, and then there are two angels as well who are accompanying him. And we sort of see that as this plays out a little bit more. Um, we're going to jump to verse 16, but I'll sort of fill in verses 3 through 15. Uh, this is where God basically says, hey, by the way, Abraham, um, you're going to have a son. In fact, a year from now, this same time of year, a year from now, Sarah, right, you will have a son and it will be a son from Sarah, right? And of course, Sarah sort of laughs like, haha, you know, I'm so old, that's not really possible. And she sort of denies that she laughs, but God says, no, you did, you did, you didn't believe me. And of course, ultimately, this comes a little bit later in Genesis, but this does come to fruition. And that year later, right, same time of year, but a year later, of course, now they have a son and it's through Abraham and Sarah, of course. Uh, but so now we sort of pick up here, that's what happens in between verses 3 through 15, but now we go to verse 16 of chapter 18, and it says this. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? 
Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous. Right, I just want to pause there. Right, we, we know, probably you're familiar with, you know, what is this sin that's so grievous? Not to say that they didn't sin in, in a whole host of different ways, but, but as we read on in this passage, we'll see, of course, what sort of is the central and chief sin of these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see it elsewhere explicitly stated in Scripture as well. And it was this sin of rampant homosexuality that took place in these cities. That was what they practiced. Uh, it was rampant all over the place. And God said this great sin, right, it, it's just... I'm not going to put up with it anymore. I'm not going to tolerate it any longer. And so he says, I'm going to punish them for this great evil. And so let's read on, right? I'll, I'll sort of read that part of the verse that I just read. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, it's not here, that, it's not saying here that, oh, God, you know, sort of there's a report that's come to him, but he's not really sure, so he's just going to go and check it out and confirm the facts, right? God already knows everything. He knows all. He knows the sin that they're committing, and he knows that they're guilty and the, the punishment that they, that they deserve. But what God is trying to say here is, in a sense, that he's just uh, making an official appearance to formally see, in a sense, the great sin of these people. It's not that he doesn't already know, but in a sense it's sort of for show for mankind. And it's a statement on God's part as he makes this official inspection. It's a statement from God saying, I don't punish casually without knowledge, right? You think of any good judge, right? They shouldn't just sort of pass some judgment, make a decision, or a jury. I realize we use a jury to, to render a verdict and so forth. But you wouldn't do that without knowledge and in ignorance and just sort of in a hasty manner come to some, some conclusion and pass judgment, right? And, and so what God is trying to say here is that he isn't one who operates that way, but rather he makes formal inspection of what's taking place to say, I'm thorough, I make my decision and decree, and I punish with knowledge of the guilt of the people with certainty. So he's just sort of putting it in human terms in a sense, saying I'll make official inspection as a statement of I'm not going to punish without knowledge, even though he knows all. This is sort of for man's benefit and a declaration that he isn't hasty in punishing, but does so with, with knowledge after careful inspection. But so now, reading on. We're at verse 22 here. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. And this is the two angels at this point. Those two men, they go away, they're headed towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. 
right at this point, Abraham's not quite content. He figures, well, why don't I kind of whittle that number down? You know, okay, you've said for 50, you, you know, you'll spare the place. What if I sort of whittle it down, you know, 45, 40, 30, and keep working it down? And so that's what he does. And, and here, Abraham isn't just sort of wondering, hypothetically, let's just say, you know, I just want to know how you would operate God. Let's just say there happen to be some people here who are sort of faithful to you, you know, serving you faithfully, what are you going to do? Would you, would you destroy them all or not? It's not just hypothetically, theoretically, and Abraham just happens to be wondering, right? He has in mind his nephew Lot, and he knows, oh yeah, my nephew Lot, whom I love and I care about, he happens to be in that city, and if God's planning on destroying that, well, he's concerned about this fact. So that's why he, he's uh, sort of questioning God along these lines. Well, how are you? What are you going to do here, Lord? If there are 50 or 45 or so forth and so on, righteous people. He's sort of interceding on Lot's behalf, right? That's really what's going on here. So, reading on. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, an appropriate humility there as he approaches God and, and um, speaks to him. What if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. And right, Abraham, if he wanted, he could have kept going, and you know, five, four, three, two, one, right? And the answer would have been the same. And as I said here, Abraham is, of course, concerned about Lot. He's concerned about his nephew and his welfare, and he realizes this is somebody who's faithful to the Lord, who loves the Lord, who serves him, and is he going to wind up being swept away in this destruction that's going to come upon these cities? And so he sort of questions God, petitions him, you know, what if, what if there's a righteous person, or 50, or, or 45, or 40, and so forth, and so on. And of course, he, he gets the answer that, that he desires, which is, don't worry, I, you know, I won't do that. For the sake of, of whatever number of righteous people might be there, I won't destroy it. Of course, in a sense, if we realize how this actually plays out, God sort of says, I'll take a third option rather than I only have two choices. Either I destroy everyone, and that includes Lot there um, in the city and his family, or I just don't destroy anyone. He sort of says, well, why can't I take option three and sort of take him out of the city, Lot, this one who's faithful to the Lord, and still destroy the city as well and sort of, in a sense, accomplish both. And, of course, that's what God does indeed wind up doing. Well, let's go on. This, now we're into chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. And I'd say this is just one of those little notes that we could probably read over and not 
not sort of think anything, but I'd say there's probably some significance, and I think God's doing a little bit of foreshadowing here. Why bother to mention baking bread without yeast? And if you think about it, right, what are some of the elements of, of this story, right? God punishing a people who've done evil, and God delivers one who belongs to him, right, out of this place, sparing that person, right, and, and in the midst of this, there's an eating of bread without yeast, unleavened bread. It sort of sounds a little bit like the Exodus account, right? Where you have the people of Israel and they're there enslaved by Egypt, right? Sort of the bad people and God brings some punishment upon them, the plagues, all that, right? Of course, culminating in the plague of, of, of the firstborn. And ultimately, God delivers, right? He saves his people, delivers them up out of that city, just as he delivers Lot, leads them out of the city. And in the midst of this, there's the eating of, of this bread without yeast in, in both cases. And so I'd say that God's already sort of foreshadowing something that's to come a little bit on down the road. Otherwise, I'd say, why bother to mention that? I think God intends this as a little hint of what's to come down the road for the people of Israel. But then going on, verse 4, before they had gone to bed... All the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house, right? Apparently, you know, word gets around and, oh, there's this new guy. Well, what do we do with him, right? Well, we're going to find out. So, right, so all the people from the city of Sodom, young and old, all the men, right, they surround the house. They call to Lot. This is verse 5. They call to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them, right? This is sort of, this is what they do in Sodom, right? It's homosexuality all over the place. And here, it's sort of tinged with a little bit of gang rape in the midst of that, right? Why not make it even worse? And that's sort of what they're saying. This is what we want to do. So, right, Lot tries to sort of put himself in the middle and, and solve this, this problem. Right, so verse 6, Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. At this point, I'll, I'll pause, and we're probably like, we're probably thinking, I'm glad I'm not Lot's daughter. You know, wouldn't want to be her. Uh, and this probably sounds a little bizarre, like, yeah, Lot, I get that you're trying to prevent these people from doing a bad thing, but you don't necessarily look like, like dad of the year here, and it's Father's Day, sort of talking about fathers and whatnot. But we sort of have to understand this in its context and in, in, in the ancient Near East, and hospitality was a major thing in the ancient Near East. Even in parts of, of, of the Middle East today, it's still a big thing. Um, and so, you know, if you lived in some place and there was someone who was sojourning and traveling, it would be natural that if they came to wherever you were, you would open up your house to them. You'd welcome them in as they're on their travels. It's just what you did. And when you welcome them into your home, you sort of, in taking them under your roof, you put them in your protection in a sense. And in a sense, you were saying, like, I, I will effectively put my life on the line for your sake by virtue of, of showing you this hospitality. And not just my, you know, not only would I put my life on the line, but the whole family of mine, right? My whole family, in a sense, we will fight to the death for you, do whatever it takes to protect you and, and spare you and watch over you because we have welcomed you into our home and shown you that hospitality. That was the culture of the day. And so that's what's going on here. It's not like Lot just doesn't care about his daughters and like, yeah, I'll just throw them to the wall no big deal, but he realizes, you know, the reality of what he has done by welcoming these people into his, own, into his home, he has promised them protection at the cost of his whole family if that's what it takes. And so if what it takes is 
his daughters being willing to sacrifice themselves to some extent because of the fact that they've taken these people into their home, that's what you have to do. Um, and so that's really what's going on there. I don't want to sort of throw Lot under the bus too much. We sort of have to understand it a little bit in this context, uh, in this context, the context of that day and age. And so Lot is just fulfilling his responsibility in showing hospitality by protecting those he's taking under, uh, under his roof into, into his home. So, going on here, right, he's reading the last of that verse, verse 8, right, you can do what you like with them, the daughters, but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Again, that's what he's stating there by saying they've come under the protection of my roof. He's saying sort of hospitality law of the day applies, and so I have to protect these people at all costs because I've taken them in. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. Speaking of Lot here, right? He comes here, he's a foreigner, and now he wants to be the judge, right? Tell us what we can or can't do. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. You know, they were foolish to think that. But on some, you know, on some level, you can imagine if someone just came up to you and, you know, fire is just going to rain down from heaven and this place is going to be destroyed, you might be thinking, eh, maybe you're a little bit crazy. I'm just going to hang out here. No big deal. Um, but of course, that, that was their response, but it doesn't wind up going too well for them. And now reading on, verse 15, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. And again, even here in that verse, we see, even in this story where we're going to see God bringing judgment upon the people of Sodom of Gomorrah for their sin, for their wickedness. Yet in the midst of it, we see God's great mercy. That's what it says. For the Lord was merciful to them. God is showing mercy and grace, right? He's concerned about Lot. He's concerned about his family. He's being gracious to them and sparing them for this impending, soon approaching, rapidly approaching destruction. And so he's leading them out, of course, before the destruction comes. Verse 17, as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look. Here's a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. 
right? And even here you continue to see in the midst of this punishment, this judgment, you see the graciousness of God here, right? You know, if I were in Lot's shoes, I'd probably be glad that God saw fit to spare me from this destruction. As soon as the angels arrive and tell me, hey, this is what's happening, you got to get out, I'd be out of there quickly. Instead, he's sort of like dragging his feet, they got to kind of like grab him by the hand, yank him, pull him out of the city. And even when he's finally there and, and they're like, there are mountains over there, head over there, get there quickly because destruction's coming quickly, uh, his response is sort of, you know, that seems kind of far. Um, I'm not into walking and whatnot. I mean, he doesn't literally say that, but you know, he's thinking it's far off. Am I really going to make it in time? I don't know. Here's this little town over there. Can I just go there instead? Right? And they're gracious. They could say, no, you got to do what I've commanded you to do. But they're gracious. They bear with him, right? God is merciful. And he says, fine, I'll, I'll be gracious to you. You want to go to this little small town over here, you can go there and I'll spare you nonetheless. Right? So we continue to see, even in the midst of this punishment, that God is still gracious and merciful as well to Lot, to his family. So now, continuing, verse 23. By the, time, by the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur. A little more literally, it says sulfur and fire. The Lord rained down sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. I'm going to come back to this Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. I want to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but before I even talk about that, one thing that's awfully interesting, we read the story about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and this is probably the type of thing where, you know, someone who's not a Christian or doesn't believe the Bible, they look at this and say, you know, come on, do we really believe this is, you know, fire and sulfur just sort of comes down out of the heavens and just destroys this whole place? Is that really believable? And yet, this is the reality, you know, even secular scholars will, will acknowledge this, that through archaeological studies, they're pretty confident, archaeologists, that uh, they found Sodom, and the reality is that around 2000-ish BC, which is this time and era that we're talking about here, the time of Abraham, uh, the whole area, the city and, and all the space around it was totally destroyed by um, great fire. It was basically incinerated such that sand and, and stone and whatnot even melted, turned to glass. So we're talking serious heat. The whole place was just sort of leveled, incinerated. Um, and speculation is, on the part of, of these scholars who are trying to piece together well, what would have caused this, what, what would have done this, um, is that probably, most likely, there was some sort of meteor that you know, came into the atmosphere and burst, exploded overhead, didn't make impact on ground, but, but exploded in the air overhead, and the energy, the heat from that just incinerated the whole place, and, and everyone, everything, they all perished. And again, this isn't like, oh, the Christians saying this and, and trying to, oh, how do we you know, sort of you know, match up historically what might have happened or theoretically what might have happened to, to tell the, you know, what took place in the story about Sodom and Gomorrah. This is sort of liberal, secular scholars who don't even believe the truths of the Bible say, yeah, just looking at the evidence here, archaeologically speaking, this is what happened. Fire, effectively, from the heavens came and destroyed this whole place. That, that's what non-Christians would even say is the, the fact of the matter. And I just find it awfully interesting. You know, I believe this because it's in the Bible. I don't need further evidence outside of Scripture. But it's always neat when you can then look at, you know, whether it's archaeological evidence or some sort of evidence outside of Scripture and see Scripture corroborated, those truths confirmed. And that's something that we see 
uh, is the case in, the, in, in this case, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we see that that destruction really did take place, and very likely, you know, God could have done it without a meteor, but that may have been the way that he did it. But the speculation is that, indeed, it was fire, effectively, from the heavens that did it. But then reading on, I'll, as I said, I'll come back to, to Lot and, and his wife afterward. I want to finish off the passage here. So verse 27, early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Right, and so I want to sort of recap before I come back to Lot and, and his wife specifically and what happened to her. And I think it's, it's fairly clear if we look at this passage, you know, what are sort of some central themes. And it's that, that, right, of course, man is sinful. God hates and despises sin. And how does he respond to it? He punishes sin. That's just the reality. And it's sort of a, a truth that many in our world don't want to hear. And you even see it creeping into churches more and more where you have those churches where we don't want to talk about sin or punishment or judgment. It's, you know, people don't want to hear that. It's not so pleasant. We just want to talk about the upbeat sort of things. But the reality is, is it's scriptural, it's biblical, it's true. God hates sin, right? And of course, he punishes it. That's just the way that he operates. But it's not like, oh, there's no hope. But even in the midst of the story, we see that God is still gracious. He's still merciful. It's not like Lot is perfectly righteous and stands before God as righteous on his own merits, on his own works. And so, you know, God delivers him because of just how wonderful Lot is, right? We all, Lot included, Abraham, all of us, we all deserve what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, and immeasurably so, not just a horrible death in this life, but we deserve eternal punishment forever and ever. And anything short of that is, is a gift from God. It, it, and, grace on his part shown toward us. And so for God to say, hey, Lot, I'm going to be gracious, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to deliver you from this place, right? You're in this city where people are wicked and evil and they've done evil things and I'm going to destroy it. For God to say, I'm going to deliver you out of this. I'm going to send a couple angels. They're going to go. They're going to tell you what's going to happen. They're going to lead you out. They're going to drag you out even when you're hesitating, right? And even as you're, you know, a little bit lazy and don't want to go far off to the mountains where you're supposed to go, they'll allow you to go to this other little city and, and still be spared there. For God to do that, this is all him being merciful and gracious toward Lot. He's not obligated to. It's not that he has to, but, but of course, out of his kindness, out of his love, out of his grace toward Lot. And indeed, not just toward Lot, but to Abraham as well. In fact, if we read toward the end of this passage, it says, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. It's not just, oh, he remembered Lot and wanted to be gracious and kind toward Lot, and so was, showed his graciousness and kindness toward Lot by sparing him from this. But actually, more centrally, the reason given is because God cares so much about Abraham that then, by extension, he cares about those that Abraham cares about as well. And so it's for the sake of Abraham, his faithful servant, that he goes and rescues Lot as well. And so we see here God's graciousness and kindness, his love, his mercy, even in the midst of a story that seems all about punishment. And of course, even if we think of the whole story of Scripture, sort of the great big story, the meta-narrative is often what it's called, of, of Scripture, that's sort of what we see. We see sinful people who rightfully deserve judgment, and yet, in the midst of all that, God is still gracious and loving and merciful and kind and offers us a way out through Christ, his Son, of course. Um, but I also want to come back to another point here, and it's the point here um, in verse 26 about Lot and his wife. 
And so I'll just sort of reread this passage just to make it fresh in our minds. And so I'll start at verse 23. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur, sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back. Remember, they had been commanded, you know, go to the mountains, flee this place, and don't look back. So they had been forewarned. But what does she do, right? Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt, right? And it's not just that she happens to look back, but you can imagine sort of the heart attitude behind this is sort of a fondly looking back at this place that's all about sin, all about rebellion. And instead of saying, I'm done with that place, that's a place of evil and wickedness, and I want nothing to do with that, I'm sort of, I'm going this way, I'm not turning back, I'm not going around. Instead, she sort of looks back fondly at that former life, that former place in the sin there, and what's the consequence? Well, there's punishment. She's turned into a pillar of salt. She dies, of course, in the process of being turned into a pillar of salt. And the reality is Jesus talks about, uh, in the New Testament, Jesus talks about this matter of turning back, right, sort of looking back. And I want to read for us Luke chapter 9, verse 62. In here, and sort of setting the context here, Jesus is talking about following him, right? And here's what he says in that context of following him. It says, Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And Jesus here is using good farming, a good farming metaphor and illustration here. If you're going to plow some land, you can't do it in such a way that, you know, you set your hand to the plow, you're going to go and plow, and yet you're looking backwards. You're not going to do your job effectively. You, they just, they're not compatible. You can't do that. It doesn't work. And in the same way, he's saying it doesn't work that way in the kingdom. You can't say, hey, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, and then be looking back at that former life, at the world, the sinful way of living, looking back at that fondly and saying, oh, things looked really good back then, you know. I used to like when I could just sort of indulge in some of that sin, and it was fun, and it was pleasurable, but I guess now i got to kind of do this different thing and serve Jesus and whatnot. If that's your mindset, right, then really there's no true repentance in your heart. You don't have true saving faith, and your heart lies not with, with Christ, not with God, but rather with the world and with sin. And so he's saying, if you're one of those people who's going to claim that you're following me, but you're really looking back at, at sin in the world, and that's where your heart is, then you don't really belong to me. You're not really a member of my kingdom. But I, I'd say that there can be a sense, Jesus is sort of talking about here a, a real major looking back at that former life, in a sense. Uh, I'd say there can be a sense in which, even as true followers uh, of the Lord, we can sort of at times want to take a little quick glimpse back. Maybe I'm not saying Jesus is wrong. Of course, he's, he's not. He's, he's totally right in what he's saying here about, of course, those who truly look back and, and in the sense of a major looking back of that's really where their heart is. They don't really belong to the Lord. But I think there's a different sense in which we can sort of, even as true followers of the Lord, where our heart really belongs to God, belongs to Christ, we're truly following him, we can still at times be tempted into wanting to take not a major look back, but a little glimpse back and sort of turn back and look at that former us, that former self, that former way of living, the way of the world, and say, oh, you know, there are things there that still draw me a little bit, whatever it might be. And, you know, those things are probably different for each and every one of us, but aspects of that former life that maybe seem enticing. Maybe it's, oh, you know, you used to party when you were younger, and, you know, they were good times at times. It's, it seemed like fun. And, you know, oh, does a little part of you miss that a little bit? That sinful part of you that still remains, that looks back and sort of takes a glance back and says, oh, that was nice. Or maybe it's something else. You know, maybe it's, 
oh, you used to be a big gossip, and you know, that was fun, you know, but now I'm not supposed to do that. But every now and then you sort of take a glimpse back, and you know, it was nice to sort of indulge in that. I think there are ways in which, you know, because of the sin that's still present in us, even as followers of the Lord, where we just sort of want to at times take a glance back at that former self, that former way of living, and there are things that still at times can draw us, even if it's just sort of a self-centeredness and wanting to be focused on myself instead of the Lord and doing my own thing, my own agenda, whatever it might be. And I just want to challenge us to, to learn from Lot's wife, not to be like Lot's wife and sort of look back, but to say, no, I've chosen to follow the Lord, even if I'm not one who truly looks back in the big way that Jesus is talking about, recognize, you know, sort of showing the fact that I don't really belong to him at all. Even though I truly belong to the Lord, I've truly chosen to follow him, but recognizing there's still times in my life where maybe I just want to take that little quick glimpse back, and there's something from that former life that still draws me, and to say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to learn from Lot. I'm going to learn specifically from Lot's wife, and I'm not going to do that anymore. I've chosen to follow the Lord. I'm all in. I'm not going to be turning around. I'm not going to be looking back. I'm 100% all in for the Lord, and that's that. And I just want to challenge us. We're not going to live that out perfectly in this life. We know that. We're still going to fall short. We're still going to sin. There are going to be times where we're tempted by the former way of living and so forth, right? Uh, but I want to challenge us to all the more in an ever-increasing way to really fully commit ourselves to the Lord and say, God, I'm following you, and that's all I want, and I'm all in, and I'm looking straight ahead. I'm not looking back. I don't want anything to do with the old me, the old Steve. He's gone. He's dead. I don't want anything to do with him. The old way that he used to live, I don't want anything to do with that and that way of living. I just want to be fully committed to you, fully honor you in all that I do. Uh, and that's the heart attitude that we should have. And I just want to challenge us to do that, to, to really have that be our application for today, to learn from Lot's wife, not look back any longer, but to say, I'm all in, 100%, Lord, I'm all for you. And to do it for him, all in service to him, that in your life you might all the more in an ever-increasing and better way, serve Him, honor Him, glorify Him, and do that knowing that for us that will mean great and great and greater and greater and abundant blessing from the Lord. And so let's do it. And let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not that we delight in the judgment of, of others and, and the death of the wicked, Lord but it is certainly a great passage to come to and to remember you and your character, that you are a God who hates sin, and rightfully so. And we ought to hate and be opposed to sin as well, Lord. And we know that you're a God who not only hates sin, but punishes it. But that's not the end of the story. You're also a God who is immeasurably gracious and merciful and loving and kind. And just like in this story, we see you showing, even in the midst of the punishment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, you are gracious to Lot and to his family. In the same way, even in the big story of Scripture, as, Lord, man has rebelled against you and deserves punishment, we know you offer still a way out. You are gracious and loving and kind and merciful. And in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you offer us a way to be forgiven and have life. And we thank you for that grace, even in the midst of punishment that's rightly deserved, Lord. But we also think of the story of Lot's wife. And, Lord, it is certainly true that no one can truly follow you and be truly, in a great way, looking back at the former life and saying, oh, I loved it back then. 
and have one's heart really be drawn to the former life, Lord. No one can truly follow you and have that unrepentant heart. But there are ways in which even as followers of yours, Lord, I think that we can take little glimpses back and glance back in this still sin within us that draws us to former sins, the former self, Lord. And I pray that you would uh, put to death that old us in an ever-increasing way within us. Holy Spirit, do that work. Just solidify all the more so our commitment to you that we might have the attitude that we have chosen to follow you. We're all in 100% and never going to look back in any way, shape, or form. No qualification to that, Lord. And give us that hard attitude and help us to live that out faithfully, all for you and for your glory. In your name, amen.